It's time to stop dealing and start demanding. It's time to stop being PC and start being transparent and authentic. It's time to get real. Prepare yourself. It's time for Crazy and the King. So, of course, we have episode, let me see, one, two, three. We're on nine, Julie, May 6, 2019, episode number nine. And so, look, I know for a lot of people out there listening, you might think, well, like, it's only nine. But it's a big deal to us. It's nine. So we appreciate that. Uh, The month of May, one of my favorite months. Uh, I absolutely appreciate it because... Here, the weather mimics something very similar to being on vacation between now and October. Uh, and, and and having been in Chicago last week and they told me that they got snow the week that I was there. Uh, I'm glad that we are in the month of May. Good weather here. Military Appreciation Month also all month long. So for those of you out there uh, that have veterans and or active duty military people in your circle, in your family, in your workplace, make sure you. You know, give them a pat. Uh, tell them thank you. Let them know that you recognize that this is Military Appreciation Month. And I really want to do more for them. I don't do nearly enough, but I try to stay conscious in each and every May of each and every year. Uh, and so that's where we are. And then on a personal note, the month of May has some great uh, milestones for me. And so those milestones make my heart smile just a little bit. <laughs> Julie, how are you? Oh, my gosh. I'm so great. Um I've been getting ready, actually leaving tomorrow for TA Tech in Europe. So we'll be in Portugal for the week. Uh, The Chat and Cheese podcast will be there and I'll be attending the conference. So I'm super excited about that. Uh, Other than that, like many of our listeners, or at least I hope many of our listeners, I've been fully enthralled with Game of Thrones coming back um, a few weeks ago. And that's been keeping me up at night some. I I won't lie. Are you a are you a Thrones person, Torin? So let me tell you, I watched it. I binged uh, maybe two years ago uh, when it was in its last season. Uh I think they took like an 18 month break or something like that. I literally watched all what was it? Six or seven years in about a six, seven week period that summer. <laughs> uh, but then they took so much time. Like I haven't gotten back into it yet. So I haven't yeah. seen anything yet. I haven't seen anything. I saw a couple of your pictures on Facebook. I know you're watching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm a dragon. nerd. I can't I can't say anything else, but I will, there will be no spoilers here. But it's a really okay. great season so far. And you should check it out if you haven't. It's definitely worth your time. I will. I will. I will. I promise. <laughs> I like to binge on things. I like to like grab the remote and just run through. Them. Yeah, so we yeah. do way too much of that at our house too so and uh getting ready to get my kiddo home from her first year of college so we're gonna have a full house again for the month of may june and july so i'm gonna take advantage of that time that's beautiful keep doing this fun podcast stuff absolutely and so you have article number one take it away yeah so i think this is fun because it kind of takes us full circle Uh, from the conversation that we had last week um, about LGBTQ. And um, the Supreme Court, yep. Yep, and and the Supreme Court. And we kind of got into an athlete discussion. um, And and then lo and behold, um, 
a South African female runner by the name of Caster Semenya, gold medal Olymp- or, you know, Olympic gold medalist, um, world champion in the Summer Olympics, world championships. You know, she's an incredible distance runner, 400, 800, 1600. And she has been going through for the past 10 years a really terrible... <laughs> it, it's, it's even hard to explain. It's so terrible. She has been... Um, ostracized and really targeted by the international athletic community because her times were getting so much faster. She was really excelling. She's winning all of her heats, all of her finals in those three big races and had set the table really starting in 2008 um, to become a world-class gold medalist for the next 10 to 15 years. And Instead of testing her for potentially doping or or steroids, something like that, in seeing how much faster she was getting, the um, international athletic community decided to test her sex. So they wanted to verify that she was actually female. And, and just, I mean, as a woman, thinking about that is so humiliating it's so personal and it's so intentional um to question someone's identity like physically and genetically and let me jump in just for a moment because they tested her gender not whether or not she was using um enhanced drugs and i believe one aspect of that testing has been banned uh in the sporting arena am, am i correct in that or did i misread something so that that's my understanding too that sex verification and i didn't even know this until this article has been a regular part of female sports um at the the collegiate level and above for decades and that practice was stopped internationally in 1999 And so I'm not even sure under what authority the International Association of Athletic Federations had the right to test her, but they did so in 2008, in 2009, and then banned her from some events because she is hyperandrogenous, which basically just means her body creates more testosterone or produces more testosterone than the baseline of other women just plain and simple. She's a female, she's a woman physically, genetically, but she does have a a condition um, that causes her to create extra testosterone. And that can be caused by a lot of different things. And we don't know the underlying cause of that. It could be just because it is even more common for women in the global South. So black and brown women to have naturally higher levels of testosterone than a baseline Caucasian European woman. So let me jump in with a moment of transparency just for a second. Uh, And so when I saw this story and I mean, and I'm stressing this story because I had no history, no awareness of Caster Semenya uh, prior to Saturday or Sunday. And on the surface, Julie, uh, I thought immediately as I looked at the image of Caster, I read the headline of the story. I immediately thought about our conversation, as you eloquently said in the beginning. And so as I'm reading the first story, I said to myself, I'm asking as I'm reading, well, if 
in fact, Castor is a transgender, a man who has transitioned to becoming a woman. Uh-huh. I said to myself, I said, well, I don't I don't necessarily feel like it's fair uh, in that regard. I felt like just to kind of sum it up, it would be like punching down and not necessarily punching up. And then after I read an additional article and then a portion of another article, uh, I was able to come to the conclusion that number one, uh, Castor has always identified as a woman, was born as a woman and, you know, uh, experiences what you have, have shared with our listeners. And then two, that I had to actually, you know, sort of inoculate or quarantine my bias and simply say, this is instructional for all of us that we cannot off. We cannot. There are those times where we cannot just take what we see on the surface uh, to be enough for us to make a decision, but that we we have a responsibility to dig a little bit deeper so that we can, you know, tie our decision, our action into some level of empathy and humanity. And, and in order to do that, sometimes it requires that you spend an additional 15, 20, 30 minutes, a little bit of time. You know what I'm trying to say. So yeah. I appreciated myself being able to learn in that moment that we do sometimes have to dig a bit deeper. So and and I appreciate you saying that because I, I was just taking a look today and there are even a lot of newspapers that are identifying her as transgender, which is incorrect in every in every way. But they didn't take the time to understand what her situation was and, and what, you know, the underlying testosterone issue is for her. And so they actually have further victimized her because they didn't take the time that you took to figure out what does this mean? And they just made assumptions based on her appearance or her speed or what she's already been subjected to by the sports community internationally. One thing that that also really stood out to me on this torn and I'm interested in your thoughts is there's this is a gender issue, no doubt. And that's what I fully anticipated talking about until I really dug into this. But to me, it's actually probably just as much of a racism issue or race issue as it is a gender issue. There are several athletes who are European Caucasian descent who are complaining that it's basically like running two different races. So we need to look at who is the first European or the first white person to come in because there is frustration of keeping pace with black and brown athletes because of how superior they are in, in a lot of these track and field events. And so I I really think that this was leveraged because she doesn't look traditional or fit into tra- tra- traditional, excuse me, fem- feminine stereotypes as far as looks. But it was really further facilitated by underlying racism at, at the competition level and at the probably the decision making level of of the IAF. Absolutely. And again, you got to call a spade a spade. And so uh, they had an opportunity to allow this to be a gender issue and then put the issue to rest. Had they released the findings of their 
uh, unnecessary uh, and intrusive testing years ago. And might I add that Castor, uh, through further research, Castor has been um, she's been, you know, adhering to uh, and going above and beyond in terms of, you know, requirements and reporting and making herself available, almost akin to the Serena Williams uh, example. And I don't want to mix the sports, but Serena, um, she will tell you and research will show that she has been through far more prodding and testing than any other woman tennis player, period. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and yet, and still she continues to win and as well as pass the tests. And so it, it could have been put to rest had they released the findings of their, uh, testing some years ago. And right. so, yes, I'm with you. When I look at the articles, when I look at one of the images, you know, there was a race that took place and there were two women on the court on the track and Castor, uh, reached out to console, uh, one of the women who appeared to be crying in the image and the the other young lady uh, just kind of looked at Castor like, don't touch her or me. Mm-hmm. And so you can see you can almost see the animus in there in in that image. Not there. That's not fair. You can almost see the animus in that particular image. And you couple that with the stories that I was able to uncover all of the comments uh, that I'm looking at in, in, in Twitter feeds and uh, on newspaper articles, it, it really is an ugly, ugly scenario. And yet again, uh, individuals using their fragility to try to change and minimalize other people that are being excellent at what it is that they do. Yeah, we, we shouldn't be forcing her to be more feminine or more Caucasian by bringing her testosterone levels down through medication. One other thing that I thought was really interesting in wrapping this up is that there are actually more male athletes who qualify as low testosterone than there are female athletes who qualify as high testosterone. But we don't see anyone making a big deal about how these guys, maybe they should be competing as women or not allowed to compete because they're not at the appropriate level. This is just purely a female issue and trying to force her into that box. And that box is really beyond being female. It is, it is race-based and it is based on Caucasian um, standards as opposed to overarching standards, which would provide more latitude, I think. Um, and, And, you know, just from a workplace perspective, I think that what we can do is just use this as a lesson. We don't make assumptions about the people how about how they look, do exactly what we both did, Torn, which was understand that we have a bias and consciously work to get out of that bias and to acknowledge it and and treat people the way that they deserve to be treated and, and the way that they um, show themselves to you as as your employees and as your colleagues and, and as your leaders. Absolutely. Absolutely. And for our listeners, especially those of you that are new, uh, Julie does an incredible job uh, when we drop the episode and below the episode, you will find the links to the article, at least one link. Sometimes she may put in multiple links, uh, but definitely look uh, down towards the bottom of the show notes and you will find this particular link uh, that complements the caster story. Is it cool to move to article number two? Yeah, absolutely. Let's hit it. All right. Beautiful. So uh, this one is a blog post on the Cap Gemini website. It's actually uh, titled Neurodivergent, Neurodivergent, a missed high potential talent pool. Uh, 
And really what Cap Gemini did in this in the crafting of this brief blog post, they wanted to talk about the fact that there are a number of individuals that are among us, people that are in our communities, people that are in our workplaces, people that are in our schools, teaching our children. Uh, there are a number of people with neurodiversities and they use the term neurodivergent, N-E-U-R-D-I-V as in victory, E-R-G-E-N-T, neurodivergent. And it refers to, Julie, people who suffer from autism, dyslexia, dyspraxia, or ADHD. And so for for the folks over at Cap Gemini, they really wanted us to understand us being the reader, that layperson. They really wanted us to understand that this neurodivergent uh, category or neurodiversity, it really impacts some 10 percent of the population. And so Cap Gemini rolled out um, just similar to ERGs, uh, employee resource groups or BRGs, business resource groups. Uh, Cap Gemini has rolled out a cap ability, CAP ability network. And it's really a network for caring for those individuals that fall in this neurodiversity, uh, space. And so really what they want are, are for three things to happen. Number one, they want to raise awareness across the entire business, every single business unit, every single department. They want to raise awareness as to the amount of people that this impacts and that number two, they are able to support and connect colleagues through this network to help them find the support and to, to create that safe space for them to be able to share their experiences, particularly in the workplace, but certainly if, in fact, the need is there, the desire is there, that they can share those experiences outside of the workplace. The third thing that Cap Gemini wants to do through this Cap Ability uh, Network is that they want to provide two-way feedback loops on policies and procedures. And really what it comes down to is that without a shadow of a doubt, Julie, they want all individuals, uh, but particularly those in the neurodiversity category in this instance, they want all of them to have a fair, and I, I bold and underline the word fair, experience during the recruiting process. And that alone made me pause because they've thought about it enough, not so much so that the people are in the workplace, but it suggests to me, it signals to me that their talent acquisition team may be putting uh, programs and processes in place. They may be putting activity schedules and efforts in place. They may be experiencing or beginning to set up messaging and employer brand uh, marketing. They may really be um, taking on the posture of being more aggressive, more proactive, more forthright in trying to attract these individuals, because what we know are that these individuals tend to get into the organization. And while they perform a little bit differently, they are sensitive to some of the things that a neurotypical person may not be sensitive to, but that these individuals get into the workplace and they perform in an incredible way, Julie. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if I've ever told you this about me, Torin, but I technically, one of my disabilities fits into the neurodiverse category. So I guess technically um, I am neurodiverse as well. I did not know that uh, because what I thought I knew, I thought it was merely a, a different definition of diversity, but I didn't know that it fit inside the, the neuro 
uh, divergent piece. So that's news to me. Yeah. So, you know, I I read this piece and I what I liked about it is that it it doesn't treat neurodiversity as a disease. It talks about treating the medical side effects or the medical complications of being neurodiverse. And so I always tell people there are a lot of things that my disability does to make me better at my job than most other people. But there are medical complications that go along with that neurodiversity that I have to learn how to manage. And that's really, I think, what Cap Gemini is talking about when they're talking about um, not trying to find a cure for autism or ADHD, but to have a process in which we manage symptoms and behavior so that we can get the most out of this talent group. And I, I really think that as we move, there are two models um, when you think about disability, there's, there's a social model and a, and a medical model. And the medical model is what's broken and how can we fix it? Uh-huh. Yep. And what are your limitations? And the social model is the societal implications and parameters that are put on disability and people with disabilities because of how they're perceived and how they're engaged as a society. So this is ta- it, it, in a very easy to understand way. It's talking about separating the social model from from the medical model and, and focusing on what we can do to create more inclusive environments for people who are neurodivergent. That being said, um, neurodivergency is also kind of the cool, sexy disability type right now. Um, autism, neurodiversity, you hear about it a lot. And I talk to companies every day and I work with companies every day who are so hyper-focused on creating an autism program or creating a neurodivergent program that they forget about the rest of us. I, I mean, there are 31 million working age adults with a disability and most of them are are going to suffer from a mental illness and they're not going to necessarily fit on that neurodivergent scale. That's going to be a fairly small percentage of the working age population. And so to me, when we're talking about branding and we're talking about outreach and we're talking about program, I'll, I'll be 100% blunt. Those turn me off because you're... It, it's perceived or it can be perceived from a branding perspective that you're ignoring the vast majority of my community by focusing on kind of the cool it um, crowd right now. And being such a small population, you're also, the companies are missing out on the real business case when they're talking about hiring people with disabilities because they're focused on such a small group of individuals, most of whom are not working age yet if that makes sense. And so companies, when they do this, they can really set themselves up for failure, unfortunately, because I know it's coming from the best place. And anyone who gets to work, I'm, I'm happy that they get to work, but they're potentially creating a place where they're not gonna be able to create a great business, play, a business conversation for their internal feedback. They're not gonna get access and maybe actually turning away some of the talent that they're interested in and that they really will benefit from, the, the vast majority of people with disabilities. And and third, and I think 
what what we can probably talk about a little bit more is is the recruiting experience. So we a lot of times see companies who are creating very complex, multi-week engagement kind of scenarios for applicants to prove that they can do the job because they have autism or they're neurodiverse. And I, everyone sees that, you know, there's always gonna be different opinions, but everyone sees that as like, oh, we're creating this fair experience because we're allowing people to demonstrate their skills and talents in different ways. And that's true to an extent. But is there any other group of individuals that you would make prove that they can jump through all of the hoops for you over, you know, a multi-month or a multi-week process? Well, they do it with engineers. No. I know they do it with engineers. You know, I know it may not do it with salespeople. They may not do it with accounting people, uh, you know, making people run through the, the, the laws of accounting or whatnot. But we know that they do it with engineers. And as a matter of fact, exactly what you're saying is one of the drawbacks as it relates to, you know, black and brown people securing jobs in the technical space because they are making them go through these coding exercises that are far different or different or they have never been introduced to in perhaps their schools, maybe in their previous employer. So I I hear what you're saying, but yes, it happens even with neuro typical individuals. Okay. So we're creating systems where people have to do additional work to get the job, right? And I'm not saying that these programs can't be managed in a way that are creating opportunity, but there's a, I think there's a really thin line to exactly what you're just saying, Torn, in there can be the perception of creating opportunity or there can be the perception of creating additional barrier. And companies need to smartly figure out how they train up individuals to do these types of jobs or these individuals particular to get the benefit of hiring them without creating sort of this unscalable process that can't move throughout the enterprise and potentially just creates additional barriers to employment for people with disabilities, black or brown people, potentially women as well. Um, You've just opened my eyes up to that conversation. And so I just, I think it's, there are, there's good and bad. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that there's probably good and bad with so much of the decision. Uh, in this particular case, I feel good about it. Uh, that A, Capgemini is talking about such. B, uh, they're making it uh, a part of the business units and the departments. C, they're focusing on the hiring managers and making sure that they're trained and, yep. you know, encouraged to, you know, to, to look at people that you know, are neurodiverse as high potential talent. And so, you know, I guess the the rest will come out in the wash, as they say. And, <laughs> you know, we'll be able to see whether or not uh, they have a great process in place. And one thing that I do want to go back to, organizations do find themselves separating uh, and isolating uh, various aspects of diversity. And so I always try to encourage our listeners, as well as the clients that I engage with, that we should not isolate in terms of how we define diversity, that we operate with a very expanded definition while we may focus for a period of time on a particular audience, a particular subset uh, that we always keep in the forefront, the expanded definition of diversity, because that is what keeps leaders attention. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I am very, very much so adamant about that. I want to also share with you, Julie, that uh, Glenn Cathy, a white heterosexual man, 
He's in our recruiting space, loved and respected by a number of individuals. He wrote an incredible piece uh, a few months back. And and I want to make sure that we share that because he talks about introversion Mm -hmm. uh, and whether or not introverts should be categorized, perhaps under that neurodiversity umbrella. And it was a very interesting piece for me, one that I've read three times now. Um, I, I, I say two publicly, but I've actually read it three times because I had a very, very long conversation with Glenn uh, several weeks back because I really wanted to know, is this another piece around white fragility? You know, is this another white man who is looking for a bit of sympathy? Um, and I didn't come at him in a negative way. Uh, he and I had an incredible conversation and it's an article that I want everyone to read uh, because I think that they will have a different view around introversion and those individuals that are sitting next to us. Uh, and I appreciate what he said in his piece. And basically it came down to simply being included doesn't ensure that people feel like they belong. I love that. Yeah. So uh, make sure that when you all are are listening to the podcast, you get down to the show notes and you look at the uh, Cap Gemini blog posts and Glenn Cathy's post titled uh, Manifesto Introversion, Diversity, Inclusion and Belonging by Mr. Glenn Cathy. Awesome. Yeah, I, I will uh, check that out. Good stuff. So you have a couple of name drops this week? Oh, yeah. So my name drops are out to Tim Hawk from Job Addicts and Chris Fields from Resume Crusade, um, both who sent us great content um, to check out and have been really engaging in the podcast and and helping us get um, stories on our radar that haven't necessarily hit Torn and I's radar yet. So thanks, guys. Uh, Keep that coming. We absolutely love it. Yeah. And uh, I don't really have a name drop, but I am going to share with you all an article that while it may not directly impact the workplace, it was an interesting read for me. And it's an article titled Forced to Divorce Americans with Disabilities Must Pick Marriage or Healthcare. It was actually on Aussie.com. We'll include the show note, but it was a real interesting article for me because again, I walk through life without necessarily a disability. And to see that people have to choose between marriages and people that they love for the sake of being able to keep benefits, it changes how an individual shows up. And so you may see a person sitting in the break room alone and by themselves and recluse because we never know exactly what that person is going through. And so I simply share the article, highlight the article, amplify the article, because I want to continue to drive into your spirit that this work is about empathy and humanity and just about being better people to one another. So look for that article in our show notes. And Torin, this this article is not an outlier. I worked for Medicaid. I've worked on benefits. This is a really regular conversation that married couples, married couples who are in your workforces are having because they need to keep these essential benefits to be able to stay dependent and get the medicine that they need. It's they're they're heartbreaking and they're very, very common, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunate. So you can close it out and then I'll make sure I close right behind you. All right. So thank you guys for listening to episode nine. Uh, I will be in Portugal for the next week. If you're at TA Tech in Lisbon, 
uh, come find me. We can have a, a fun conversation or maybe just a cocktail and, and hang out. Um, other than that, then I'm home for a couple more weeks. We've got some interesting interviews and side interviews coming up on the podcast. So I'm excited to start getting those recorded and out to you guys um, for even more fun content from Torn and I. What about you, Tor? What do you get for the next couple of weeks? Hey, so listen, I want to say thank you to uh, Yellow for having me to uh, come out and keynote uh, my session last week, uh, Dinosaurs, Lions, and Diversity. If you have a collegiate recruiting program, you may want to check out Yellow, Y-E-L-L-O, and see the new stuff that they are doing. You can catch me this week on Sirius XM Channel 126, 1 p.m. on Sundays. I interview Miss Joe Weech uh, about her new role in Dubai. We talk about ageism, microaggressions, and veterans staying with the tune of Military Appreciation Month. Also, I have two seats left for a private dinner that I'm doing in Vegas on next Tuesday. It's a dinner sponsored by my dear friends, uh, Social Talent out of Dublin, Ireland. So if you are listening, you are with a Fortune 200 concern you care about dni hit me up Uh, we're doing a private dinner with candy castleberry vp of diversity partnership strategy and engagement with twitter uh so it's going to be crazy uh it's during unleash next tuesday uh so hit me if you want to be in the room lastly consider how you show up in the workplace number one find your voice make sure you have an awesome week we are ghost see ya Thanks for listening to Crazy in the King podcast. I'm Julie Sowash, your co-host with Torn Ellis. Follow us on social media as Torn Ellis or Julie Sowash. And also follow our hashtag, Crazy and the King. This episode was produced by my gorgeous husband, Chad Sowash. And our music is by DJ Sells, straight out of Baltimore. You can find Crazy and the King wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us. And if you like it, share it with a friend. We'll see you soon. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary, yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you, and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.